All right, let's get things rolling here today. So I'm going to try and do just a, a really quick review each week that we get together. Um, so again, kind of foundational to what we're doing in this class is not just talking about what does Jude have to say to us, but how do we go to Scripture, right, and make meaning of it? How do we find out what God would have to say to us in his word? And so um, to that endeavor, I'm using a model that I'm indebted to from Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes out of their book, Grasping God's Word. It's just a five-step process for going to the scriptures, right, and reading it for understanding. So that first step is to grasp the text in their town. Understand what did this text actually mean to the original intended audience? We're asking questions like, who was the author? Who was the intended audience? What was the date? What was the context? Okay, And then the second step is we're measuring the width of the river to cross. We're asking, what's the differences between them, the original biblical audience, and us today? Right? Third, we're going to then cross the principalizing bridge. So once we understand what the text meant to them, we understand what are the differences between them and us today, Right? then we can start to understand what the text has to say to us today. Right? And then fourth, we're going to... <coughs> consult the biblical map, right? And along with this, I've added an extra step. We're also asking how have other believers throughout church history made meaning of this text, right? A really good maxim here is if nobody else in history has read this text and come up with the conclusion that you've come up with, go back to the drawing board, right? Right? You can't be the first person to ever understand it that way. And then fifth, Grasping the text in our town. So now that we understand what it meant to them, what are the differences between them and us, what is the principle that transcends time and culture, right, where we understand how has this been understood in the past, then we're able to take that principle and apply it to the church today. So in review of what we've covered so far, we asked some questions. First of all, who was the author? Well, the answer was Jude, right, who is the brother of James, the bishop of of Jerusalem and the brother of our Lord Jesus himself. Jude came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah sometime after the resurrection, but before Pentecost. We understand that he was married with children. He had grandchildren. He served as an itinerant preacher among the churches in Galilee. He was apparently very well educated and quite capable in Greek and the art of Greek rhetoric, and also very familiar with the uh, scriptures of the Old Testament. So Jude's intended audience were first-generation Christians, right, converted from Judaism, living in Galilee among the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves in Galilee. So the third question we asked is, what is the genre of Jude? This is pretty different than what we find elsewhere uh, in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament. So Jude is this kind of Jewish apocalyptic style that was really, really popular um, especially in Judea and Galilee during the first century, right, before the destruction of Rome in 70 AD. Uh, Jude is steeped in both Greek speech rhetoric, right, we talked about that a little bit last week, this idea of ethos, pathos, um, and logos, right, but then also midrash um, Jewish exegetical methods from the rabbis. Um, so this letter of Jude is actually a speech act, Right, that was captured in writing. It was intended to be read aloud right, in its entirety 
to an auditory rather than a literary audience. So the fourth question we asked was, what was the date of Jude? And we put this somewhere between 48 and 50 AD. It's early. It's one of the very first books, right, of the New Testament that's actually written. Um, fifth, what was Jude's purpose for writing? Well, he tells us himself at the beginning of the letter. He indicates his longstanding intention to communicate with his audience, but it's been made much more urgent by this crisis that's arisen in the churches. And his desire is to urge his audience to contend for the faith that has been once for all handed down. All right, so last week we started to look at the question, what is it that Jude has to tell us about his opponents? And he told us that they were long ago destined for condemnation. Jude seems to believe that they were the subjects of prophetic condemnation, right? which we've identified coming out of the book of First Enoch. He calls them ungodly people, right, which is uh, contrasted against the righteous or the people who belong to the community, um, the covenant community of faith. Um, Jude is especially emphasizing their antinomianism. That's a big word, but we talked about that last week. It's, it's two pieces, anti, right, which is against, and then nomianism, which is law, right? So these people were taking the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and using it, right, as a license, Um, to do whatever they wanted to do, regardless of the law of God. He actually says they go so far as to pervert grace into sensuality, right? Most certainly using grace as a license to engage in illicit sexual practices. And they deny our Lord Jesus Christ. So rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, they've become a law unto themselves, right? Right? goes back to that temptation in the garden when the serpent looked at Adam and Eve and said, did God really say? Right? That's what these people are asking as well. Did God really say? So we're going to dive in from there. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Right, so today we're picking up right where we left off last week. Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude provides for us three examples from the past, right? examples of what his current opponents are doing or are like. Right? So first we have the unbelieving after the Exodus. Right? This is a direct reference to Numbers 13 and 14. The second one that he gives to us is the fallen angels. And we're going to get into that a little bit deeper today, just asking where exactly is that coming from? 
Um, And then third, Sodom and Gomorrah, which comes directly from Genesis 18 and 19. So we're going to start with that first illustration or example that he provides to us after the Exodus. Okay, so an account of this can be read in the Torah, right? That's the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is particularly coming from Numbers 13 and 14. And I'm going to read that to you. This is a a lengthier read, so, so bear with me. Let's look at God's word together. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Pharaoh according to the command of the Lord, all of them, men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names, from the tribe of Reuben, Shamuna, the son of Zahur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nahbi, the son of Vopshi. From the tribe of Gad, Gehul, the son of Machi. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev. And go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or are weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. Bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, The time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebohamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eskol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshol, because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron, and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. 
The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we're well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us just to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people and your might from among us, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, Then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, 
I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test ten times. Sorry, let me go back here. Ten times that have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall pass it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings from the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. All of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day you shall bear your iniquity. Forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do, all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in the wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report for the land died by a plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So Moses, at God's command, sends spies into Canaan for 40 days. 
He instructs them to bring back a report of the land that God is giving to them. And the spies come back and they report that the land is indeed rich with resources, but it is also inhabited by great fortified cities and the descendants of the Nephilim, uh, which uh, Hebrew Nephilim means the fallen ones who are giants. And there will be more about the Nephilim coming up in a moment here. So there's a discrepancy between what God has said and the message of the returned spies. Now, the people of Israel knew what God had commanded, and they also knew that he was mighty to save. They had witnessed all the ten plagues in Egypt. They had witnessed him going before them in pillars of smoke and fire. They'd seen him providing water from the stone, manna from heaven. And yet, somehow, they still didn't believe. They were influenced by those who would challenge the character and instruction of God, and they ultimately rebelled. So after witnessing firsthand all of these things, the people now believe somehow that God will let them die at the hands of the inhabitants of Canaan. And they decide to overthrow Moses and return to Egypt. So in response, God curses the people. Every single one of them over the age of 20, except for Caleb and Joshua, will die in the wilderness over the next 40 years. All right, so we understand what the text meant to them. We understand some of the differences between them and us. So we're at that point where we're going to cross that that bridge, right? What does that text mean for us? Um, What did it mean for Jude and for his audience? Well, I Concept here, rebellion against God's command provokes God's wrath and punishment. Does that seem like a pretty pretty fair summary of what we can take away from this passage in, in Numbers 13 and 14? Similarly, Jude's opponents are challenging Jesus. Despotain kai kurion, our master and Lord. And Jude expects a similar judgment to fall against them. Right. So those are the people after the uh, exodus who rebelled. So the second illustration that he provides to us are the fallen angels. Now, this is interesting. I, I grew up in the church and I had this certain understanding of a narrative of what happened. Right. There was this angelic rebellion. Right? You had Lucifer, this archangel who rebelled against God and took a bunch of angels with him. It's not actually in our Bible. That, that story's not there. Um, there is no explicit account of the fall of the angels in our canon of Scripture. So it's commonly understood that the devil is synonymous with Satan and is a fallen angel named Lucifer, but there's nothing explicit about this in the Bible. Um, In fact, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, in that text, there's no explicit connection between the serpent and the devil right there. If you go back and read it, it blew my mind the first time somebody pointed this out to me. It only says the serpent. It doesn't say anything else about that character in Genesis 3. Um, We've got that account in Job, right, where um, Satan, Hasatan in Hebrew, that's the adversary, um, accompanies the sons of God. Right? So in that narrative, the sons of God are going to the courtroom of God to present themselves before God, and Hasatan is there also, presenting himself to God in the heavenly court, having re- recently roamed the earth. 
And he is granted permission from God to test Job with trials and tribulations. The familiar reference to Lucifer, right, that comes from Isaiah 14, 12. Um, This is actually about the king of Babylon. So in the Latin Vulgate translation of Isaiah 14, 12, you can read about Lucifer, morning star, who is fallen from heaven. That's the source of that popular understanding of an archangel who rebelled against God and became the prince of darkness. But there are a lot of problems with this. First of all, Lucifer is a transliteration of the Greek word in that text. So, um, eosphoros, right, is the word that's transliterated to Lucifer. It actually just means morning star. And it's not used as a proper noun in that text. Second, if you actually read that uh, passage of Scripture in context, you can see that Isaiah explicitly tells us in verse 4, just a few verses before that, that this is actually him mocking the king of Babylon. It's not about an angelic being at all. In Zechariah 3, we have another account of Hasatan. Again, he's found in the courtroom of God, and this time he's accusing the high priest, Joshua, right, um, making accusations against him. So the Bible consistently portrays Hasatan, Satan, as a tempter, right? I've got several references there, First uh, Chronicles 21.1, right, where uh, Hasatan tempts David to perform the census, Remember that passage of text? That's fascinating. Um, In the Gospels, Matthew 4.10 and 16.23, Mark 1.13 and 8.33, right? These are the accounts of the temptation of Christ, right, by Hasatan over that 40-day window of time. Um, In Acts 5.3, we're told that Hasatan tempted Ananias to lie Um, to the apostles about this donation that he made to the church. Um, We also see that Hasatan is an accuser, right? Uh, That's referenced there in Zechariah 3, 1 through 12 that I mentioned a moment ago. He's also a deceiver, able to uh, blind people to the truth of the gospel and also to hinder its proclamation. So Matthew, right, in his gospel account of the temptation of Jesus, this is the first time that we see Hasatan and devil being used interchangeably as though they're the same. And then in Mark 3.23, this is the first time in the Bible that Satan is explicitly connected with demons, right? So in this account, the Pharisees actually accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul. Right, uh, who in, in their lore was the prince of the demons. But Jesus points out the foolishness of what they're claiming by asking, how can Satan cast out Satan? It makes no sense. A house divided against itself can only fall. Um, but in this case, uh, Satan being used as an adjective rather than a proper noun, it's being made synonymous with a demon. Okay, so this more developed understanding of uh, Satan as a character starts to happen in the New Testament. Um, then in Luke thirteen sixteen, right, Jesus accuses Satan of keeping a woman bound by demonic possession for 18 years. 
right? So Hazikon, again, there's a link being made to, to demons. In Luke 22, we're told that Satan possessed Judas Iscariot so that he would betray Jesus. Jesus later tells Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So apparently Hasatan has the ability to possess or to make a claim over people. And then in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, this one's interesting, that he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, this is how some have mistakenly made a connection back to Isaiah 14, 12, right? Which says, how you have fallen, O day star, son of the dawn. But it isn't clear from Luke's text whether Jesus is speaking of a past event. Perhaps he's speaking metaphorically about the work that his disciples have just been doing, going out and casting out demons, right? Maybe he's just saying, I just saw Satan fall with all these demons that you uh, have cast out. Or is he foreseeing a future event? So we, we can't really base a strong doctrine of an angelic fall off of that. So in 2 Corinthians 11.14, Paul writes that Satan, this time using Hasatan as a proper noun, disguises himself as an angel of light. So he's not an angel, but he disguises himself as one. Um, And then John in Revelation, he makes the only canonical connection between the serpent of Genesis 3 uh, with Satan the accuser and the devil, presenting them all as the same figure, fallen from heaven along with a host of angels. Um, But you'll see in that account, it, it doesn't seem to be a past event. It's kind of difficult to decipher what's happening in this this vision that John writes. He says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their own lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Okay, so in this vision, I think generally it's acknowledged that this woman in the vision is Israel or the church. Right, so it it tells us that on her head she has a crown of 12 stars. People seem to think that's referencing the 12 tribes, right, of Israel. And she was pregnant, and she gives birth to a male child, right? Generally, that's accepted to be Christ, right, who is to rule over the nations, right? And then we have this dragon who's at war with the church. It's apocalyptic, right? We have to be careful about reading it overly literalistically, right, but we, we get the sense there's, there's a heavenly warfare that happens. But the serpent isn't cast down right, from the heavens until much later in the story. So it kind of shuts down that narrative again that you've got this devil who's an archangel who, who falls from heaven before um, the foundations of the earth. So John's revelation, written in the same apocalyptic style, was composed at least a decade later than Jude. We have no reason to think that Jude would have been citing him as source material. But they may have shared a similar source, right? So in comes 1 Enoch, which we know Jude relies upon heavily. And 1 Enoch 6 through 10, 11 offers a narrative account of an angelic fall. But it's a different story than the one you're probably familiar with because it happens actually in the context of the narrative that we know in Genesis chapter 6, right? It's the beginning of the flood narrative. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to read to you Genesis 6 here. This is the context. So Moses writes, When man began, began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, and I told you this was going to come back up again, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man and that it was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So, sorry, let me go back here. The, uh, this is from, um, from Sarna. Um, he's a, a, a rabbi, uh, scholar of the Old Testament. He's writing about this account in his uh, commentary on Genesis 6. He says, the account given here is surely the strangest of all the Genesis narratives. It is so full of difficulties as to defy certainty of interpretation Their perplexities arise from the theme of the story, from its apparent intrusiveness within the larger narrative, from its extreme terseness, and from some of its vocabulary and syntax. 
The passage cannot be other than a fragment of what once was a well-known and fuller story, now etched in the barest outline. It is quite likely that the main function of the present highly condensed version of the original story is to combat polytheistic mythology. Okay, so some questions that arise as we read from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. There's three big ones for me anyway. First of all, who on earth are these sons of God characters? What exactly is it that they did? We know that they took the daughters of of men, right, and had children with them. Um, And then third, what are the Nephilim, right? Who, Who is this being referenced? Well, we can't answer that question from Genesis. Now, Enoch... Uh, claims to answer those questions for us. And it seems pretty clear as we read Jude that Jude is relying quite heavily on what Enoch has to say about this. So, bear with me. We're going to read what Enoch has to say about this. And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels... The children of the heavens saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And Samyazad, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of such a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual implications not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all 200 who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And these are the names of their leaders. I'm not going to try to read those, but there's a bunch of them. There are chiefs of tens, and all others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants whose height was 3,000 L's, who consumed all the acquisitions of men, and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind, and began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them and bracelets and ornaments and the use of antimony and the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures. And there arose much godlessness. That should be a familiar word, right, from a week ago, godlessness. There arose much godlessness. And they committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. Samyaza taught enchantments and root cuttings. Armaros, the resolving of enchantments. Barquail taught astrology. Kochabel, the constellations. Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds. Arachiel, the signs of the earth. Shamsiel, the signs of the sun. And Sarael, the course of the moon. And as men perished, 
they cried. And their cry went up to heaven. And then Mikael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel looked down from heaven and saw much blood being shed upon the earth and all lawlessness being wrought upon the earth. And they said to one another, the earth made without inhabitant cries, the voice of their crying up to the gates of heaven. And now to you, the holy ones of heaven, the souls of men make their suit, saying, bring our case before the most high. And they said to the Lord of the ages, Lord of lords, God of gods, King of kings, and God of the ages, the throne of thy glory standeth unto all the generations of the ages, and thy name holy and glorious and blessed unto all the ages. Thou hast made all things, and power over all things hast thou. And all things are naked and open in thy sight. And thou seest all things, and nothing can hide itself from thee. Thou seest what Azazel has done, Bear with me for a second. Thou seest what Azazel has done, who has taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets which were preserved in heaven, which men were striving to learn. And Samyazda, to whom thou hast given authority to bear rule over his associates, and they've gone to the daughters of men upon the earth and have slept with the women and have defiled themselves and revealed to them all kinds of sins. And the women have borne giants, and the whole earth has thereby been filled with blood and unrighteousness. And now, behold, the souls of those who have died are crying and making their suit to the gates of heaven, and their lamentations have ascended, and cannot cease because the lawless deeds which are wrought on the earth. And thou knowest all things before they come to pass, and thou seest these things, and thou dost suffer them. And thou dost not say to us what we are to do to them in regard to these. Then said the Most High, the Holy and Great One, he spoke. And he sent Uriel to the sons of Lamech, and he said to him, Go to Noah and tell him in my name, hide thyself, and reveal to him the end that is approaching, that the whole earth will be destroyed, and a deluge is about to come upon the whole earth, and will destroy all that is on it. And now instruct him that he may escape, and his seed may be preserved for all generations of the world. And again the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel, hand and foot, and cast him into the darkness, and make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and cast him therein, and place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness. Let him abide there forever, and cover his face, that he may not see the light. And on the day of the great judgment he shall be cast into the fire, and heal the earth, which the angels have corrupted, and proclaim the healing of the earth that they may heal the plague and that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed disclosed and taught their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. And to Gabriel said the Lord, proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of fornication and destroy the children of fornication the children of the watchers from among men, and cause them to go forth. Send them one against the other that they may destroy each other in battle. For the length of days shall they not have. And no request that their fathers make of these shall be granted on their behalf. For they hope to live an eternal life, that each one of them will live 500 years. And the Lord said unto Mikael, 
Go bind Samyaza and his associates who have united themselves with women so as to defile themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when their sons have slain one another, and when they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them fast for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of their judgment and of their consummation. That's my alarm to let you know if you have kids, you can go pick them up. Five more minutes. Till the day of judgment and of their consummation. Till the judgment that is forever and ever consummated. In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined forever. And whoever shall be condemned and destroyed will from thenceforth be bound together with them to the end of all generations. Okay, this continues to go on for a little bit, but you get a sense of the kind of punishment that has been reserved for these fallen angels. So, in summary, according to 1 Enoch, the sons of God, which are referenced in Genesis 6, also in Job 1 and 2, are presented by Enoch as angels. Right. So when we see sons of God, he's interpreting that as angels. These angels took human women as wives and they bore children. In addition to their illicit sexual deeds, these angels are said to have taught humanity to perform charms and spells, astrology, warfare, and knowledge of all kinds of sexual perversion. Their children with the daughters of men were giants, the Nephilim, right, who are referenced in Jude's first illustration, who oppressed humanity and drank the blood of all kinds of creatures. All of this provoked the wrath of God, resulting in the apocalyptic flood, sparing only Noah and his family, and the eternal torment and imprisonment of hell for those fallen angels. Crossing the principalizing bridge again, what are we to do with this? Well, again, rebellion against God by committing illicit sexual sins will provoke his wrath and punishment. Interestingly enough, and I think this is fascinating, after the whole flood situation, which seems to be caused by practices of extreme sexual perversion, um, as well as murder, violence, after the flood, the waters subside. What happens? Well, Moses tells us, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Now, he did something more than see the nakedness of his father. Right, is what's implied in in the text. He, He did something very perverse. And then he told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So to ensure that the point is not missed, right, of why God brought this flood 
upon the earth. Moses doubles down on his message, immediately following the flood, more sexual perversion. God just cleaned up the earth, and, and here we are again. Which leads us to Jude's third illustration, where we're going to pick up in a couple of weeks together, Sodom and Gomorrah. So big idea that I want you to take away here. Jude is not just picking three random illustrations. These are deeply intertwined with one another, okay? But big picture that we can walk away with, we've got two really solid examples of people um, who rebelled against God and who performed all kinds of sexual immorality, and God brought his wrath upon them. So I would encourage you, uh, before we get together in a couple of weeks, Um, Do me a favor, go back to Genesis, read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, spend a little bit more time in Jude, make some observations. Um, Well, I hope you all have a wonderful week, and I will see you next weekend, but we will not resume for another two weeks.